For nine decades, Hollywood has been obsessed with little gold men. The first Oscar ceremony lasted only 15 minutes. 12 awards were handed out, and the speeches were more likely to be given by local academics extolling the virtue of the nascent film industry than the winners themselves thanking their agents. Things have changed since then, and the annual Oscar ceremony reaches some 37 million viewers each year. What's the same? We all love the movies and talking about them. I'm Nathan Cohn, Trinity University Class of 1995, and this is the Learning Together podcast series, featuring faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. Today, I'm joined for the second month in a row by communication professor Patrick Keating. Last month, we talked about classic Hollywood and the history of cinematography. This time, we're looking at the 2018 Academy Awards and offering a few bold predictions. Dr. Patrick Keating, welcome back to a, a second episode of the Learning Together podcast as we focus on movies. The last episode, we talked about classic Hollywood cinematography. And so if you haven't heard that, if you're listening right now, go back and check that out. But right now, we're going to be talking about contemporary movies and specifically this year's Oscars, the 90th annual Oscar Awards. Yeah, thank you for having me. So the Oscars, 90 years now of history, what do they mean today to films and their filmmakers? Yeah, I think there's a cynical answer to that, which is that <laughs> it's, uh, you know, Cash. largely economic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that there are certain films that uh, not necessarily blockbuster type films, but they are often called sometimes dismissively Oscar bait type films that are made and they really need to get uh, the critical acclaim and get some awards in order for them to. Uh, make the kind of money that they're that they're hoping to make. So that's maybe the cynical take on it. But I do still think the filmmakers uh, actually take it very seriously that they, these are awards given by their peers and uh, a lot of great films have been recognized over the years. So it really does mean something when they're getting recognized by their peers for what they've accomplished. They've changed the way voting happens at the Oscars several times over the past mm -hmm. 10, 15 years, now we have a possibility of getting up to 10 nominees for Best Picture when it used to be five for many, many, many years. Uh, that's one example. I also wanted to ask along those lines of what happens and what Oscars mean. I get this sense now is that for the big races, for actor, for Best Picture, for things, the, the top of the line categories, so to speak, that uh, the Oscars are to some extent rewards for quality, but some extent their popularity at the same time, uh, mm -hmm. popularity among the peers. But yet for the below the line category, maybe it's because I'm a nerd about this type of thing. I tend to think, well, for the below the line category, it's not, it's, it's weighed a little bit the other way towards mm -hmm. the, the tech guys are, are rewarding the, the work and maybe popularity is a little bit secondary. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think there are a lot of times it can depend on like who's doing the nominating nominating versus who is doing the voting. And I, I'm, I'm not certain this is correct. Um, it, it's the tech groups that will submit the nominations. Correct. But then uh, the Academy as a whole uh, will actually vote on on most of these categories. And so it the nomination part, I think that might be true that uh, the tech workers are really trying to reward the things that they most admire. But then once you get it to the Academy as a whole, maybe not everybody is actually familiar with what to be looking for or what to be listening for. I remember 
uh, I heard one sound, uh, you know, very accomplished sound designer talk dismissively of the awards. And he had won like several Academy Awards himself. But he said, oh, for those awards for sound, they just vote for what's loud. (laughs) (laughs) And I've heard cinematographers say also dismissively, uh, you know, for best cinematography, they just vote for something that's pretty. Uh, rather than voting for something where the cinematographer has carefully mapped out a progression of moods over the course of the story. Um, you know, it's just, does it have spectacular shots in it? Uh, then it's going to get votes. Well, we'll get into that in just a couple of minutes from now. What we can both agree on is that the Oscars bring attention to great films and bring audiences to them that will love them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think uh, I think that's the case this year. Most of the films uh, nominated this year weren't necessarily blockbuster films. Um, they're more mid-budget films, including some small films. I've been watching them to prepare uh, for this podcast, uh, and I've really enjoyed seeing them. Well, let's talk about uh, the big elephant in the room, which is the big picture race. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, then we can talk about some of the other favorite categories of ours as well. Uh, This year, we have nine nominees in the Best Picture category, and they are Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. You've seen all of them. Uh, Let me just ask you, first of all, what's your personal favorite? Let's see, personal favorite, I'm actually going to say Dunkirk. I was I was very impressed with Dunkirk. I, I've i seen many war films before, and I thought it was a war film that was unlike anything I'd seen. I just thought the way it grabbed my attention the very first moment and refused to let up until the end uh, was pretty extraordinary. Uh, and I also liked its, its narrative experimentation. That was probably my personal favorite, but there are other films that I also admire uh, for for many other reasons. You know, I think uh, uh, Get Out uh, is a very innovative film. Uh, there again, you're you're taking a film that's in a genre that's totally familiar, mm-hmm. um, usually not an Oscar bait genre at all, and yet you're doing something totally different with this genre. Uh, uh, you take a horror film and give it. Uh, kind of political meanings that we just don't normally don't associate with that genre. Uh, so I thought that was a very innovative film. And it was very on the nose about it, which, you know, was, I think, of our time as well, because horror films have always had, or not always, but horror films have often had uh, some sort of political message behind mm-hmm. them. And I think about episodes of The Twilight Zone from the early 1960s that also mm-hmm. carried across messages about race and society. Mm-hmm. But this one was very hey, uh, about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, There is a lot of scholarship on uh, horror films, you know, really being about race or really being about issues of, you know, the dynamics of the family or being political in many ways. Um, The the great film scholar Robin Wood uh, has written quite a lot about that. And then I think uh, Get Out is is drawing on that tradition and maybe making the politics more explicit. Mm Mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I loved about Dunkirk was uh, what you said is that it's not a typical war film. To me, it felt a lot like a survival film. And I'm a sucker for survival pictures. And uh, that's why I believe my wife really enjoyed it as well, because it's not a, a fighting war film, but it is really all about surviving. And mm-hmm. that was something that I think many of us 
um, uh, metaphorically also, whether if not literally can, uh, can identify with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's right. So it does have that like, you know, gut appeal to it. And then it also is, is, uh, it also has that experimental side mm-hmm. to it, what it's doing with those three separate timelines. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's a pretty bold thing to do with a multi-million dollar uh, war movie. And the sound design of the film sidebar here for sound design while we talk about it, the sound design of Dunkirk and the music score itself by Hans Zimmer is very, very unique. I'm not normally a fan of Hans Zimmer's music because it's very loud and brash in most of the films that he scores, but here it works perfectly. And then sometimes I couldn't tell where the music ended and where the sound design began because there's this ticking motif on the soundtrack, uh, almost like a stopwatch that it could be part of the music or it could be something that's actually ticking in the cockpit of a plane. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then there's the music that's happening at the same time. And there's so much happening that it was really brilliantly constructed from a sound standpoint. Yeah. And in like a lot of Christopher Nolan films, it can be very difficult to hear the dialogue uh, which normally is a sign of of bad sound mixing, but clearly uh, Christopher Nolan, um, I think, wants to more overwhelm us uh, rather than to make sure that every every word comes across totally cleanly. Let's go back to one of the other Best Picture nominees here. Uh, Phantom Thread uh, is a, a beautifully photographed film uh, full of great music again by Johnny Greenwood. It's a toss-up for me this year between his score and the Hans Zimmer score for Dunkirk as far as what I liked best as far uh, in music and films this year because there's this lush, gorgeous stuff that's playing during Phantom Thread. It's a movie that stars Daniel Day-Lewis as a tailor who is very exacting in everything that he does and has everything placed a certain way in his life as well as on the dresses that he designs and, and puts together and then marries uh, a young woman who uh, has her own way of uh, wanting to be exacting and the conflict that arises between the two of them drives the narrative almost in kind of a a Hitchcockian way, similar to something like Rebecca, I think, Mm -hmm. or that mood I felt in this particular movie. So it's very, it's very classical in that regard. I thought. It's a hard film to talk about because you don't want to give away where, where the story's going, but it it goes in, in interesting directions by the end. And I thought it was, uh, put together with, with such care. Paul Thomas Anderson actually photographed the film himself, um, working with a, with a lighting designer. And the cinematography is, is uh, very meticulous. I, I also did like the, the music uh, quite a bit. So Johnny Greenwood, that's uh, he's from Radiohead, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and, and so it's not your typical music score. In parts, you know, very classical sounding, but in parts, it's a little disturbing, mm-hmm. uh, that musical score. I think it's a really striking score. Yeah, there's these wonderful electronic touches that come in every now and then. Mm-hmm. It also has a terrific costume design, as you would uh, hope for a movie about uh, a designer. You know, uh, the, the dresses, I kind of think the dresses, they're kind of Ugly, but in a way that <laughs> you you can say, well, in the fifties they would have been seen as beautiful. <laughs> they really capture that that uh, period sensibility. So costume design, uh, just diverging from that at moment, uh, oftentimes rewards. I mean, look, all of our nominees here are period pieces of one fashion or another. There's Beauty and the Beast, which is set sometime in the nebulous eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, Darkest Hour from uh, the early days of World War Two. 
Phantom Thread, 1950s, Shape of Water, early 1960s, and Victoria and Abdul about Queen Victoria, set in the late 1800s as well. Mm-hmm. Costume designers love period pieces. Uh, yeah, they certainly love the period pieces because that they know is where they might likely be rewarded. Uh, but they're also doing what costume designers do, which is they're thinking, what would this character wear? What would this character wear in the beginning of the story? What would this character wear at the end of the story? So they're also thinking about how costume design can enhance a film's uh, narrative progression. And so I, I certainly think uh, uh, Phantom Thread does that. I also loved the costume design and the production design and, and really everything visually about The Shape of Water. So The Shape of Water has the most nominations this year with 13 total. It is nominated for Best Picture as well. Tell us about that picture. I haven't yet seen it yet. And on Twitter, where I frequent uh, film Twitter, uh, people are kind of jokingly, even the people who love it, jokingly refer to it as the fish movie. Well, it's it's made by Guillermo del Toro, who is a great filmmaker, uh, probably best known for uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which inexplicably did not win Best Foreign Film the year it was up, but it was was really one of, one of the great films uh, that's been made in the last few decades, I think. I don't rate The Shape of Water quite as highly as I do uh, Pan's Labyrinth, but I do think The Shape of Water is terrific, and it's just so marvelously strange. You know, it is a, a romance, and one of the romantic partners is, is a fish creature. <laughs> And you've never quite seen a movie like this before. It's a Cold War thriller, but with the science fiction element. And it is authentically a romance. There's a wonderful part where the protagonist starts to dance with the, um, the fish creature. And I have to imagine that, that that's a turning point for, for many audience members. Some people are just going to say, oh, this, this movie's just going crazy. And that's when I decided I loved the movie, mm-hmm. uh, that they were just so uh, committed to making this, this completely original, strange, uh, strange work. What, what are some of the other elements of this movie? Because it's got 13 nominations here. Let's, uh, let's look here. I mean, uh, what, uh, what else it's, uh, it's, it's up for at the same time? Um, uh, the Shape of Water also. Richard Jenkins is nominated for actor in a supporting role. Uh, Sally Hawkins is nominated for The Shape of Water. Octavia Spencer, actress. So we've got three acting roles uh, for this particular picture. It's also up for cinematography and uh, costume design, as we mentioned earlier. Tell me about some of the other elements of this movie that are that are being rewarded by the Academy. Well, Del Toro. Del Toro is a filmmaker. Uh, you know, Del Toro loves movies, loves how they're put together. And so throughout his career has been extremely precise about how can I tell my story visually uh, and how can I tell my story through sound. So Del Toro wants to put the tools of cinema to work. Uh, this is not just film theater. Uh, uh, this, is, um, this is a movie. And you get that really from the very beginning of the film where um, the camera is wandering through this house and everything in the house is floating just because it's, it's filled with water. Mm-hmm. And right away, I, that, that is what I said to myself. This is a filmmaker. Is, is he's hitting us with these striking images uh, that, just, that just catch in our minds and help to make the meaning of the film. 
and so that's you know that's that's cinematography with the camera moving through this space. That's uh, production design, costume design is at work in that, and it's also effects work. Yeah. So Del Toro has really all of his films have been deserving of awards for many years, uh, and so I'm glad that this one is finally receiving some recognition. Hello, this is Danny Anderson president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to my conversation with Professor Patrick Keating about the 2018 Academy Awards. You talked about Pan's Labyrinth being what you felt was a superior movie, and uh, there's a long history in the Academy Awards of the Academy not giving the Oscar for one performance and then later kind of making up for it with another. And you know, that was evident, I felt, I felt with, uh, for example, when Russell Crowe lost out for The Insider, but mm-hmm. then won the next year for Gladiator, which, mm-hmm. you know, was seemed to me just this kind of boisterous, bombastic, are you not entertained type performance. And The Insider was so much more subtle and I, I enjoyed it much more. Um, you have that kind of thing happening this year with uh, Gary Oldman, who has been nominated before for Oscars. And this year, a lot of people say, oh, it's his time. He's going to win for playing Winston Churchill uh, mm-hmm. for Darkest Hour. What about things like this happening in the, in the Oscars? Yeah, Gary Oldman's a good example because he's been one of the great actors for a long time. You know, I'm thinking something like Prick Up Your Ears uh, with Stephen Frears um, back in, was that late 80s, uh, yeah. I want to say? Uh, Sid and Nancy. Yeah, Sid and Nancy. Um, so he's been doing terrific stuff for a long time and for the most part has not been getting nominated. But then he's in this Oscar bait type movie, uh, <laughs> Darkest Hour, and then he gets nominated. That said, Darkest Hour is pretty good. Uh, it's directed by Joe Wright, who also, I think, uh, is a very good visual filmmaker. So it has a little bit more snap to it than a typical historical epic. And Gary Oldman is absolutely terrific in it. Um, You know, he does Churchill, but he's also, you can see some of the Gary Oldman, Mm -hmm. um, you know, passion coming through in that performance. What are some of the the movies or performances or nominations that came out this year that particularly delighted you? Yeah, I was pretty delighted when uh, Lady Bird got some nominations. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a terrific movie. I think it has a particular tone that is really distinctive to it. Uh, it's working in a genre that, again, is familiar. You know, it's, it's a coming-of-age story. But it has notes of, of kind of like a cynical edge to it at times. But it also doesn't, you know, drown in cynicism. It also has some, you know... Uh, human connection to it without going over into the realm of over sentimentality. Uh, So that's what I mean by saying that I think it has that really nice tone to it. Um, It can be edgy, but it also um, has that human connection. And all the performances are terrific. And Saoirse Ronan in particular, uh, I think is really strong. I think 
the odds makers are predicting that uh, uh, Frances McDormand is going to win uh, for three billboards uh, for uh, Best Actress. And, of course, she's great, but I'm kind of pulling for Saoirse Ronan there. You also asked about nominations that uh, were surprises. And one I really just learned about. This was the first time that the Academy has nominated a woman for Best Cinematography. Right, for Mudbound. Uh, for Mudbound. And Mudbound is terrific. Uh, it's, it's incredibly well photographed. We're talking about Rachel Morrison here. Yes, yes, exactly. Rachel Morrison. And I think that uh, their exteriors, their interiors, their shots where the camera's inside, but it's looking outside. Uh, this is this is actually some very difficult stuff. Weather conditions are changing throughout that movie, too. Exactly, exactly. You know, there's uh, there are a lot of rain scenes. There are a lot of sunlit scenes. And, and a lot of things are lit by candlelight, uh, lit by daylight. Uh, so there's a tremendous variety of lighting schemes in that film. And I think that the progression uh, throughout the film is, is, is handled really expertly. Great. Yeah. And Mudbound was uh, a Netflix production as well. So if I understand it correctly, it premiered on Netflix and, you know, played in New York and LA for a week. So it would qualify, but Netflix is the place that most people are seeing this particular movie, not on a big screen. And so when you talk about something like cinematography, it almost seems a shame that uh, that that pe- most people are experiencing it on even their forty or fifty inch TV and not on a really big screen. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, and that might impact the voting. I'll be I'll be interested to see how it impacts the voting because in that category, Mudbound is also up against uh, Blade Runner uh, right. twenty forty nine, which has brilliant cinematography by uh, Roger Deakins, who who's been nominated like 14, 15 times. Yeah, never won. won. Yeah, never won. I think he's going to win it this year. I think this is his year, but you're you're absolutely right. People who are going to be voting, some of them are going to have seen some of the films on the big screen where they're going to look spectacular, and others are going to have watched them on a much smaller screen. And that's that's unfortunate, but that probably, I guess that's been going on for a long time. A lot of the Academy voters, you know, they, they get these screeners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even back in the day of videotapes, they would just get this stack of videotapes, and then they would watch all those movies on video. You know, one, one of the things that uh, a friend of mine really was so pleased to see was that uh, a comic book movie, Logan, was snuck into the Academy Awards in the adapted screenplay area, which was really quite amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. I, unfortunately, I haven't seen that one. I'm, I'm a little squeamish about violence. And so my wife, Lisa, watched it and she said, you might want to sit that one out. <laughs> uh, uh, so I have not yet seen it. Uh, I do like James Mangold, uh, who's the director and one of the uh, co-writers. Uh, and he's also working with another writer named Scott Frank, uh, who's been a, a terrific writer for many years now. So I'm sure it's a terrific screenplay, but I, I have not seen the film, unfortunately. But it brings up one other nominee or non-nominee, I should say. And I hate to use this word snub because mm-hmm. when you say snub, it, it implies that this one deserves, this one doesn't deserve, whatever. It's just a non-nominee. Wonder Woman was a really critically popular film this year, mm-hmm. as well as a huge, enormous hit with audiences. And part of the rationale for the Academy uh, opening up their field for Best Picture nominees I understand it when they did so was so that a film like, say, The Dark Knight or Wonder Woman or something like that could sneak in and be a part of that Best Picture nominee field. And yet no nominees at all for for Wonder Woman, which uh, actually kind of surprised me a little bit. I I thought, oh, surely somewhere it would be in there. 
Yeah, I was a little surprised by that too. Yeah, I, 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 I think you could say it's it's a bit of a snub that there were that there were no nominations anywhere. I think some people were expecting it, it might get a, a picture uh, or possibly a, a director nomination, and maybe this is a good time to to mention that uh, while the Academy has been trying, I think appropriately to make their awards more inclusive, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, you've got. Uh, an African-American director nominated. Um, you've got a woman nominated also for Best Director. Both of those are very rare, uh, but still, unfortunately, they're still very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and no Latinos at yeah. all anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, in the in the acting uh, categories, exactly. Yeah, so they, they, they definitely have more work to do in terms of making things more inclusive, though I think overall this year um, they've taken some steps forward. So when the Oscar ceremony comes, do you do you actually watch it? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, Sometimes we have a party. I don't know if we're going to have a party this year, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we watch it. And so do you actually like watching the show? (laughs) I usually enjoy it. Yeah. You know, some of the musical numbers are good. Usually I think uh, sometimes the opening number is funny uh, and then the rest of the jokes are less funny. They front load it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I usually enjoy watching it enough. I got to admit, I'm a sucker for it. I, mm-hmm. I, I like watching the Academy Awards um, and uh, people probably, uh, my, my family probably gets upset with it because I always want to shush people when the speeches come on because I actually want to hear the speeches that the awards recipients are, are giving. You know, it's, this is their moment and I want to hear what they have to say. I mean, I, I really like doing that and I hate when the, the stick man, as Julia Roberts famously called him, the conductor, mm-hmm. has to play somebody off. I found... When I do have an Oscar party, uh, we, us- we usually have a, a ballot, uh, so there's a little mild gambling going on. That, that makes it a little bit more fun. I run the office pool at work, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's, you, know, you, put a, you put a dollar in so that whoever wins, you know, they could probably wind up buying themselves a sushi roll with the prize, but you know, they yeah. do get the coveted fake Oscar trophy that I have that, that gets passed around at work as well. So with that in mind, though, of your Oscar predictions and your, your betting here, let's just quickly go through the, uh, the, the top categories here of Best Picture, the screenplays, and the acting categories, and let me hear who your, your predictions are. So Best Picture. Ooh, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. A lot of people are picking three billboards. A lot of people are picking The Shape of Water. I have a weird hunch that I'm I'm actually wondering I'm wondering if Get Out might actually yes. pull it off. Yes. I think it has a shot. It's it is a very interesting film. It's a very original film. I guess if I had to guess, um, I would say Shape of Water mm-hmm. uh, might be the front runner. Okay. Well, I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm really pulling for Get Out because yeah. of it's it's just if there was one movie, probably along with Dunkirk, but. Get Out was maybe an inch above it for me that really just sent electricity up and down my spine as I watched it. Mm -hmm. It was Get Out because I watched it at home on a DVD. I had the sound down low so I wouldn't disturb anybody else in the family who was already in bed. And yet at the same time, that movie completely held me the entire Mm -hmm. time I was watching it. Fantastic. Yeah. For director, I I actually do think it's going to be Del Toro mm-hmm. uh, for The Shape of Water. So I'm not sure if Shape of Water will win picture, but I I actually think Del Toro has a good shot at best director. For actress, I think it's between Frances McDormand and Saoirse Ronan. Uh, maybe Sally Hawkins actually has a shot as well. I guess most people are picking McDormand. Uh, th- there's the part of me that's hoping that it's going to be Saoirse Ronan. Yeah, yeah. 
And then for actor, I'm pretty confident it's going to be Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. Most people think that, I think. Let's see, supporting actor. I think a lot of people are expecting it's going to be Sam Rockwell. I liked The Florida Project quite a bit. I was disappointed that The Florida Project did not get more nominations. And Willem Dafoe is terrific in that. I think there's a lot of love for that particular movie and the actors as a whole in it. And so sometimes I feel when an actor gets nominated from a movie that where everybody loved it, that they could be the catalyst for showing the love for that particular picture. And so perhaps he could spoil and, and, and as they say, and, and take home the prize. Yeah, I think it's possible that Defoe could win that. I'd be very happy if he won. And then a uh, supporting actress... I'm afraid I haven't seen I, Tanya, but most people are picking Alice and Janney to win uh, for I, Tanya. But I also liked uh, Laurie Metcalf quite a bit mm-hmm. in Lady Bird. Yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't mind if uh, uh, both Saoirse Ronan and uh, uh, Laurie Metcalf won for Lady Bird. All right. How about the screenplays here? Let's, let's take a quick look at adapted and original screenplay. It's interesting because when they say adapted screenplay, even though it could be an originally written screenplay, if it's based on some characters, then it turns into adapted like Logan. Yeah, that's correct. I think a lot of people are predicting Call Me By Your Name uh, is going to win. I think it's a very intelligent screenplay. There's also a bit of a sentimental choice because uh, James Ivory has been around for a long time, you know, directed all of those Merchant Ivory movies like A Room of the View uh, back in the 80s and 90s. We just looked this up, that James Ivory is 89. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think there might be, he might be a kind of sentimental choice for adapted screenplay. I think he's very likely to win. Original screenplay, that is a compelling category. I'm just looking at this. Um, you've got The Big Sick, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards, uh, all of which are really original uh, screenplays, you know, in, in every sense of, of the word original. Hmm. Which, what is going to win? I think there's a good shot that Get Out might win, Yeah, actually. I think there's a good shot that that might win. But that's a way of them to reward Jordan Peele for, right. you know, the what he, has, uh, what he has written and come up with from his imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I'd also be curious to see if The Big Sick won. Um, I, I, I enjoyed The Big Sick quite a bit, and, and its screenplay was, was clearly one of its strongest features. So I could see that. That pulling off an upset there. All right. So here are your picks, and uh, we'll hold you to that, of course. All right. <laughs> and um, if there was any uh, one movie or maybe two, we won't let make you stick with one, but like if, you know, somebody, people love to do their homework between now and when the Academy Awards come out, uh, and you said, if you haven't seen this, go see it. Uh, what are the couple of two or, two or three movies that you would say? You know, these are the ones on uh, among all the nominees. You got to see it. Okay, let's see. If you haven't seen it, uh, go see it. Uh, well, it, it it did not get a lot of nominations, but I really did like the Florida Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there is a part of me that wants to like push people to go see the Florida Project. Okay, good. I promised myself that we would do this on a kind of a a light note here, that we would explain the difference between sound editing and sound mixing. So this is my geek moment now as being an audio guy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the sound editor is really a large team of people who are assembling hundreds of tracks 
uh, really, for each scene. So they're uh, both making sure that the, the dialogue is in place, but all of the sound effects, all of the ambiences, uh, uh, you know, all of the music has to be put in place um, in sync with the image. And it's the team of sound editors who are doing that. And then you've got this whole mess of sounds and you need someone else to come along and mix them together. And they're making decisions. Well, at this point, which is supposed to be louder, which is supposed to be softer. And these are tough, creative decisions because you have to imagine the composer is talking to the sound mixer saying, I think the music should be the loudest. Yeah. And the sound, you know, the ambience editors are talking to uh, uh, the sound mixer and saying, no, actually, I think the ambience should be the loudest. (laughs) Uh, But the mixer is the one who has to make that final decision. Uh, And oftentimes the mixer is sort of the, um, really the head of the sound company because they're the person who's, who at the, at the end of the day is going to decide we're going to be hearing this sound and not that sound, or we'll be hearing a lot of this sound and a little bit of that sound. Well, what you just said points up again the fact that uh, the Oscars reward such a variety of the different elements of movie making and that no one person is responsible for any particular movie. There is an entire team of people, uh, both technical, acting, uh, directing, writing that goes into the making of any movie, whether it's a short film or uh, a long feature film. And the Oscars are a great way to highlight some of that uh, wonderful work and the fact that so many people work hard to bring us the movies that we love each and every day. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. Yeah. Dr. Patrick Keating, thank you very much. I look forward to watching the show and uh, thanks for your insight. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the first Tuesday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest topics for future consideration, email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.